You do not want to leave too, do you? Lord, to whom shall we go? These two questions are from one of the most gripping and haunting scenes in the Gospel of John. Jesus has been teaching. Large crowds have gathered to follow him, to see the signs and wonders that he had put on display, followed him to see the words that he was going to speak. But here he gives a hard teaching, and many of those who had followed him turned back and no longer identified as his disciples. At this point, he turns to the twelve and asks, You don't want to leave too, do you? So the setting for Jesus' question is the dust being kicked up by the many people who are walking away from him, and the rumbles of grumbles making their way throughout the once enraptured crowd. Do you want to join them as they walk away? Is the cost of discipleship worth it? And it's here where Simon Peter answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. The readings for this week will help us see the depth, the urgency, and the significance of this remarkable exchange between Jesus and his disciples. In 1 Kings chapter 8, the people of Israel have gathered, the temple has been built and dedicated, and the Lord has blessed it by making his glory known with a visual display of power. Solomon then steps forward to give a prayer of dedication. He lifts his hands toward the heavens and says, Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promises to date your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised, and with your hand you have fulfilled it, as it is today. Now, Lord, the God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, the promises you made to him when you said, You shall never fail to have a successor to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your descendants are careful in all that they do to walk before me faithfully as you have done. And now, God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David, my father, come true. After this reflection on the covenant, Solomon continues by reflecting on the promise that God would dwell among them in this temple. He says, But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be toward this temple night and day, this place of which you said, My name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer of your servant that he prays toward this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. In these words, Solomon echoes the covenant promises of the Lord to his people. If they worship and obey the Lord in this place that he has provided for them, he will dwell among them, and his presence will bless them. Their identity as a people will be directly related to the presence of the Lord among them. Solomon also builds upon the Old Testament's vision and theology of the temple. The Lord had prepared a garden for Adam and Eve for them to walk in his presence. The Lord then prepared a tabernacle for the nation of Israel to dwell in his presence. The temple, too, would be a place that would represent the transcendent God's mediated presence among the people. Here we have both a promise of great blessing 
and a warning of great terror. The presence of the Lord among his people is not a trivial thing. They must pay close attention to the Lord's commands and recognize the staggering weight that comes from being this close to the Lord of glory. The God who cannot be contained has chosen by his sovereign grace to meet with his people within these walls. This high theology of the temple and God's meeting place with the people can help us understand the way that the prophets and poets of Israel speak of this place. Oftentimes they will speak of Jerusalem or the city in ways that are very lofty. And uh, if you weren't thinking in these terms, would be very confusing. However, in light of God's promise and the nature of his covenant loyalty, these expressions are expressions of hope that if the people worship and obey, the Lord will display his glory and the people will be able to experience God's blessing. For example, in Psalm 84, the psalm for this week, the psalmist writes, How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty! My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out before the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near your altar. Lord Almighty, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. The psalmist then envisions the life with God as a journey towards this place. It's no surprise then that there's a reflection on God's attributes that comes next in the psalm. After the journey to this place, the psalmist offers this prayer. Hear my prayer, Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, God of Jacob. Look on our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. The psalmist then takes this emphasis on God's presence and God's blessing and makes the ultimate comparison. In verse 10, he writes, Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. So here the psalmist describes the place of God's presence, reflects on the commitment of God to this place, responds in a prayer of supplication and praise, and expresses soaring gratitude to be able to be in this place. So this psalm picks up and develops the theology of God's presence in the temple. It also has an interesting connection to a, the passage from Ephesians about the armor of the Lord. The psalmist had said in verse 11, For the Lord God is a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor, and he does not withhold good things from those who trust in him. The New Testament epistle for this week's readings comes from the well-known passage in Ephesians 6, where Paul is discussing the nature of spiritual warfare and his discussion of the armor of the Lord. There's a lot going on in this passage that relates to what Paul is developing in the letter to the Ephesians as a whole, uh, in the way that this draws upon a variety of Old Testament text and theology. But I wanted to focus on a particular uh, point here that relates to some of our other texts for this week. Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God 
so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you will be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth, buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. As we think about Paul's powerful metaphor here of the armor of God and putting on the full armor of God, there are two roadblocks that might distract us from the point that Paul is making here. One, we might isolate these different pieces of armor from one another, and we might also individualize this armor set. Both of these tendencies or temptations perhaps distract us from the point that Paul is making. We don't want to isolate these individual parts of this image and only focus on one or one that we really appreciate uh, and then think about it in isolation from the others. One of the uh, key features of Paul's letter to the Ephesians is emphasizing union with Christ and the blessings that flow from it. So when we put on the full armor of God, he says several times here, he says twice here, put on the full armor of God. So even the way that Paul starts this image emphasizes the holistic aspect of this image. When you have the armor of God, you have all of these things. You cannot take you can't take one without the other. You can't take the helmet of salvation apart from the breastplate of righteousness or the sword of the spirit apart from feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. This is an image that is more than the sum of its parts. We also don't want to individualize this as if uh, kind of diminish the image as if we all have our own individual pieces of armor that is ours and that put this on in the morning and take it off at night. Um, you know, before you go out the door, put on the full armor of God. One of the things I think that is helpful to see here that this isn't our armor, it's God's armor. So this is not our individual armor that we own. This is God's armor that by his grace, through faith, we are able to harness. In this sense, we are not engaging in this battle. The Lord is fighting for us and on our behalf. And by faith, we participate in his victory, in his power. Texts like Psalm 84 give us a glimpse of this. As it had said, the Lord God is a shield about us. And he bestows favor and honor on those and does not withhold these things. So all of these pieces of armor have counterparts in Old Testament texts where the peace that we have as we fight in these battles comes from the Lord because it's his armor and we fight in his presence. In light of the emphasis on the theology of the temple and the presence of God as well, as we're thinking about this passage from Ephesians, we move from the emphasis on God's power uh, and presence to prayer and requests. After Paul's discussion of the armor of God and fighting against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms, in verse 18, he says, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people 
Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. So the whole purpose of talking about uh, the armor of God and the presence of God's powerful attributes in our own lives um, and among his people is so that by the Spirit uh, we might pray and proclaim the gospel fearlessly. Paul says that we should fear the one who has the power over all principalities so that we might fearlessly make known the gospel of his peace. Even in chains, Paul is imprisoned, and yet the power that he describes in his discussion of spiritual warfare is still his, even though he is in chains. You don't want to leave too, do you? The question Jesus poses to the disciples in John 6 is one of the searing and enduring questions posed to the believer. This was true in the first century Jerusalem on that day of Jesus' teaching. It was true on the night that Jesus was betrayed and abandoned. It was true in the earliest days of the church, and it is just as urgent in our own cultural moment. Is the cost of discipleship worth it? In today's text, Solomon, the psalmist, Paul, and Simon Peter give us a deep well from which we can draw an answer. Drinking deeply from this reservoir of riches can give us hope and convince us that the Lord's presence among us is the treasure of discipleship that is worth the cost. Lord, to whom shall we go? Says Solomon, There is no one like you in heaven above or on earth below. You keep your promises, you hear our pleas for mercy, and you have given us your name. Lord, to whom shall we go? Says the psalmist, How lovely is your dwelling place, my King and my God. One day in your presence outlasts a thousand days elsewhere. You are the sun on our backs and the shield that surrounds us. Lord, to whom shall we go? Says the apostle, You strengthen us with your strength and fit us with your own armor. Your spirit guards our hearts and vanquishes fear. Your presence is not bound by our chains. Lord, to whom shall we go? Says Simon Peter, You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. In the final words of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus again gives us a promise of his presence. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Praise the Lord for his grace. Mm-hmm.